0: If you would, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. Right now, we have been working through Peter's first letter for about a little over a month now, but for this Sunday and next Sunday and likely one more, we're going to take a little break. With Holy Week beginning this week, we're going to have a sermon on Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, we will have a resurrection sermon. And we're going to look at and see our King afresh this week. So we are going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want you to think about kings. When you think of a king, what kind of traits or characteristics pop into your mind? What is the most basic picture in your mind when you think of a king? What kind of things do you see? You probably see a crown. Makes sense. Usually kings have crowns. A throne. They have to have a big chair to sit on. Money, lots of riches, power, a scepter and that ball thing that they hold in their hand, a cape with a giant brooch, maybe even a red cape with the white and black spotted collar. Stoic, strong, pictures of them everywhere throughout their empire. So you know this is the king's land. That's what we think of when we think of a king. Now let's imagine this king in a specific scenario. Imagine him entering into a city that he has not yet defeated, but he has the power to do it and everyone knows it. He's outside. He's got his thousands upon thousands of soldiers against a couple hundred in the walls. He rides in to have a discussion about peace. Now imagine him. What is his attitude like? What's he look like when he comes into the city? How does he look when he is coming to discuss this peace that everyone knows is less peace and more of a surrender? He comes in with his head held high. A smug look maybe on his face. The finest clothes arraying his glory. His impressive weaponry. The largest and most powerful course, strength, victory. That's what you would expect because that's what we see, whether it's real kings, whether it's in books, maybe in your Bibles. Think about Solomon. He came in with a splash everywhere he went. Kings have an undeniable power and presence. But then, We come to our text this morning. What might be a familiar text, but what is a well of riches and beauty for us to draw from. We come to Luke 19, and here we see a new kind of king. A king that's idealized. We like to think that kings maybe are like this, but we know they're really not. A king that's idealized in the world, but not really found. A king with more riches and power and might than any other yet who comes to his people with humility and pity. See in this text that Jesus, we see in this text that Jesus is a new kind of king. And not just that he is the king, he is that, absolutely, amen, he is the king, but we see what kind of king he is. Here in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is a king who is humble in his power, and he is heartbroken in his judgment. That's the main idea of this passage. Jesus is a new kind of king, humble in his power and heartbroken in his judgment. And so this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this text, and we're going to see afresh who our king is And with this, I hope that we leave changed in two ways. First, I hope that it sharpens our understanding of what kind of king Jesus is, captivating our hearts and leading us to praise the one true king. And second, as we're captivated with our king, with who he is, what he's like, I hope that we leave this morning encouraged to follow our king in his way of humility and pity. I want us to see him so we can praise him, and I want us to see him so we can follow him. That's our goals this morning. To break up the text, we're going to look at this rather large passage in two sections. First, Jesus is the king, humble in his power, verses 28 to 40. And then second, Jesus is the king heartbroken in his judgment, verses 41 to 44. Just a word of warning. The first point is many more verses, so it will take a little bit longer in the sermon. We're 35 minutes in, and we're just now to point two. Don't get nervous, it's okay. Let's jump in. Jesus is a new kind of king, a king humble in his power. Here in the first section, it's the main movement of the scene. It's a big piece of the passage as a whole. There's a lot going on, there's lots of details, so we're gonna actually break it into three kind of sub points within it to see Jesus' power specifically. First, we see Jesus' power in his preparing for his entry. This is mainly verses 28 to 34. His preparing for his entry. Luke explains that Jesus is now drawing near to Jerusalem in verse 28. This is a very important detail. This is a climactic moment in the overall narrative because since Jesus' temptation in chapter 4 of Luke, he has not been to Jerusalem. But people in Jerusalem have been coming out to see him. Over and over again. All of Judea and Jerusalem have come. To see him. And then in chapter nine, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And over and over again, he's drawing near to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem. The narrative is calling us to see that Jesus, something is going to happen when he gets to the holy city. Something big is going to happen. It's a long awaited arrival. And so, to make sure that this long awaited arrival is just right, when they get to be- the Bethany area, Jesus sends out two disciples. They go ahead and they get a cult, specifically one that's never been ridden. And they bring it to him. Now we have to ask, how did Jesus know that this cult was going to be there? Had he made plans before? Maybe they have been in Bethany area and he, he's already made plans and had it all lined up? Maybe. But the way it unfolds and the response he tells them to give the owner seem to imply that's not really the case. Look at verse 31. He says, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. In one sense, the owners would likely know that Jesus is in the area. He's been in Jericho for a while, and he's been doing some pretty important and eye-catching things. Lots of miracles, things that don't go unnoticed. And so people are going to know Jesus is in the area. So why would he not say Jesus has need of it? Instead it says, the Lord has need of it. The vague nature of the response implies two things. First, it's most likely that Jesus has not made prior arrangements, but instead that he knew that the colt would be there and that the owners would give him the colt. It's a small display of Jesus' divinity. The fact that Jesus knows what only God can know and that he has the power to see this and to make sure it comes to pass points to his power as God. Also, the colt's unridden. And I don't know how many saddles you've sat in but I'm not a big fan of getting on the back of a horse that hasn't been ridden before. And Jesus is just going to be set up on this colt and coolly ride it into Jerusalem. It's a display of his power and his knowledge. Second, the phrase, the Lord. Jesus is implying that he is rightful ownership of all things. It's a common phrase for servants of different royals or governors, especially during the Roman period and maybe during the British Empire in the U.S., to say when taking property for official use. While you think you own your horse, really Caesar owns it, and if he needs it, it's his. You're just borrowing it and feeding it for him. Right, so if the Lord needs it, you give it. In American history, we're, we're familiar with this kind of process. We may have been a little sensitive to it, because many other people dealt with it for many years, yet we are familiar with the idea of the king needing it the king taking it. So in one sense, this is Jesus' way of saying he is king. I am king. I am the royal lord, and I need this cult. At the same time, the lord is the everyday name for Yahweh. The lord, your God. This is Jesus saying a little bit more than just that he's a lord. He is the lord. He is the true Lord. And not only is Jesus' disciples instructed to take the colt for the Lord, the fact that they are looking for a colt is massively important as well. Jesus is making a statement about who he is by preparing his entry this way to ride in on a colt. See, throughout the Old Testament, colts, especially those of donkeys, are associated with the promised king the Messiah, the one who the Lord will send to be the final king. Whenever the first son of David, Solomon, when he's coronated, he rides in on a mule. Then, when his people are in exile, God promised to them that that he would send the new and final king, his chosen one, his Messiah. He would send him on a colt. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the the foal of a donkey. So Jesus' preparation reveals his power as God and as God's promised king. He knew the cult would be there. He knew the owner would give it. And his choice is a statement about who he is. He is the king of Zion, the promised king of God. And that king, the promised king, is the most powerful king the world has ever known. Isaiah 9 We read, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's the promised king. That's what he's like. That's his power and his might, his right to rule. His kingdom will never end or be matched. Jesus is saying, I'm that king. I'm that king. His preparation reveals a glimpse into who he is, the magnitude and power he has as the promised king. Then, along with the preparation, Jesus' power is seen in his approach, mainly verses 35 and 36. The two disciples that go ahead, they kind of go ahead like a royal emissary, like right, a king is coming to a town, he sends his emissaries before him to prepare, to get what he needs and come back. So he sends his, his royal emissaries before him, they retrieve the cult, and they bring it to him. But then look at what they do. Look back at your Bibles with me, starting in verse 35, we're going to read 35 and 36, And take careful note of who is doing the action in these verses. Starting in verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus doesn't just get a colt, hop on its back, and take a break from walking as he rides into the city. His disciples cover this colt with their cloaks. They lift him up and place him on it. And then they place their cloaks, assuming the other disciples and people with him, on the ground so that his colt doesn't have to walk on the dirt but can walk on their garments. Now these are actions that would all take place in this period. Whenever a victorious king is coming into his city, their horses would be covered with big and beautiful linens. They would be placed. They don't just get a a step up, you know, you're going to get up on a horse, you give someone your knee and step them up. They would be picked up and put on the horse. And then their people would place their cloaks on the ground over the path. These are actions done by the people, not the king, done by the people to recognize who he is, to recognize his power and to pay homage to him, saying, we are loyal, you are our king. And notice, that is exactly what the disciples are doing here. They are doing it. Jesus does not instruct this. This is simply the actions of his disciples. This is their recognition. Jesus is saying, I'm the king of power, and everyone around him is saying, you're the king of power. They are recognizing his right as the king, his power as the king, and they're indicating their loyalty to him as their king. Jesus is receiving the recognition and treatment of a victorious king as he approaches the mount to go up to Jerusalem. The second way we see his power. Third, finally, during this approach, Jesus' power is shown because it's the cause of praise. This is verses 37 to 40. As I said a few minutes ago, Luke's account's been building to this point. The reader, if you started at the front of Luke and you had not read Luke or your Bibles, you'd be reading, you'd be waiting for this moment over and over again he's on his way to jerusalem he's on his way to jerusalem it's been this rising tension it's like water pressure that's building up more and more pressure behind a dam the supports are creaking all of their joints are weeping and dripping and now here in our passage all the water is bursting through it's exploding this is a momentous point of action. The entire account's been building to this, and the multitude of disciples with him are evidence of that as well. They are the same way. They burst with joy. This massive group, a multitude of people, they're climbing Mount Olivet, which is on the east side of the city. It's higher than the Temple Mount, so when you get up to the top of the mount, you can see all of the city below you. They climb this mountain, and as they break that ridge line, they can see the city, they can see the temple, and it's gleaming, and they just burst with praise. It's an expression of all of their hopes and their dreams coming to pass. The fountain of their hearts are bursting with praise because their mighty king has finally come. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Now why? For all the mighty works that they had seen. They are praising their king as they see the city that he's coming to because they know who he is because they've seen what he's done. They've seen his power displayed. The crowd begins to rejoice and praise God for all the mighty works that they had seen. The word for mighty works, it, it's, it, it means power. All of his power, all of his authority. Luke uses it twice in his gospel account and twice in Acts. And each time it's referring to powerful, miraculous events. It's even translated in Acts 19 as extraordinary miracles. And that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. See, the context of Jesus' entry is laden with Jesus' mighty works. If you look up in your Bibles at chapter 18, starting in verse 35, he draws near to Jericho, and a blind man is sitting there, and he heals Bartimaeus, the blind man. Then in John 11, John records that right before the triumphal entry, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So he's overcoming creation and all the problems and hurt and pain that is in it. He's displaying his power and his authority over the world by healing a blind man and raising a dead man. And if that's not enough, Luke also records right before the triumphal entry that Jesus forgives and restores a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He has the power to heal, he has the power to raise, and he has the power to save. And so it's Jesus' power, his mighty works, that the multitude is praising. They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise to him. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is the king of power, and the people can't help but praise him. And if they could, he's got enough power that the rocks around him are gonna praise him too. If he can turn rocks into sons of Abraham, and he can turn rocks into mouths to praise him, he is the king of all power. To see Jesus rightly, we must see his power. But we must also see that his power is complemented by It's enveloped by his humility. So far, we've seen that he's the king of power promised by God. He's the king of power recognized by his people, and he's the king of power praised for his mighty deeds. But to see these, we had to dig. What hits you on the first read as a reader? What's the first thing you see? His humility. If you've never read your Bible before, and you know that I'm about to read the scene about a king coming into a city. You read Luke 19, and you're just asking, what kind of king is this? He's getting praise, but he's on a donkey. Everything about his entry, while it's symbolic and revealing of his power, it's magnifying of his humility and who he is. Jesus is the son of God. So Luke begins... He gives us a genealogy. And Jesus is the son of God. And yet, he comes in on a donkey to people who hate him. He's the sight-giving and the dead-raising, the salvation-bringing king who rides in on the beast of burden. I know it's prophesied, but just see that for a minute in contrast to other kings. And he's dressed in what we can only assume is his one and only tunic. He's unarmed. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a banner or a cavalry. He comes in humility with meekness and gentleness. Here's Zechariah 9.9 again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's the promised king with power, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is our king. This is who he is, the one with all power, the one who's in the form of God, perfectly equal in glory and worthy of worship, humbled himself by taking on our flesh, coming to his people the one who could have wiped his enemies off the face of the earth, took on their weakness, came to them, lived among them, was reviled by them, and died for them. The king who has the power to save you is the king who humbly came so that he can save you. That by grace, through faith, in this powerful king, we can approach him as our humble king, and receive the salvation that we need. This is a new kind of king. This is your king. He's the one, because of his power, we fear him. And because of his humility, we can draw near to him. And so the question we must ask ourselves, friends, is this how we see Jesus? Is this what we think of when we think of King Jesus? The world, non Christians, might think of him as a good teacher. They might think of him as a fairy tale. They might think of him as maybe not even existing. Christians, sometimes we can think of him as just power. And sometimes we can think of him as just humble and meek. And friends, if we don't see Jesus' power, we won't give ourselves to him. If he's not the king of power, he can't be the king that you need. He can't be the king that restores all things, that rights all wrongs, that judges all man, and that reigns for all time. If Jesus is not the king of power, then he can't raise the dead and he certainly can't forgive your sins. But if he's just the king of power, he's not much different than other kings. He's greater. We also need to see Jesus' humility. We need to know that he not only saves sinners, but that he welcomes them. We need to know that he not only heals the hurting, but he sympathizes with them. We need to know that he not only raises the lowly, but he identifies with them. He knows and he loves you. Jesus is a new kind of king, a king who can save and who can be approached, who is strong and who can understand our weakness. Our king is the great king on high, high above all, as Psalm 113 says, Who made himself low? Jesus is the king, humble in his power. And not only is he the king who is humble in his power, he is the king who is heartbroken in his judgment. Our second point. So far, Jesus' entry into the holy city has been of great jubilee and joy. <laughs> Everyone's excited. He's the promised king. He's been placed on his cult as the victorious king. He's surrounded by shouts of praise as the Lord's king. He's coming in with great joy and jubilee all around him. His his people's hearts have been bursting with adoration, exclaiming, their king is here. But While Jesus is surrounded with cries of joy, he himself sheds tears of sorrow. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, right? So back in verse 35 and 36, they come over the mountain, they see the city, they're, drawing, they're coming down. At that point, when they're crying out, when they're drawing near and they see the city, he wept over it. He wept The king of promise, the king bringing victory, being celebrated, is weeping. This verse in particular captivated me this week. I was just grabbed by it. If his humility and power wasn't shocking enough, his compassion and heartbrokenness for those facing judgments is even more so. It is just shocking, and it's deeply comforting. To us, First, why is this so amazing? Why does this pop out at us? Well, look at why Jesus is weeping. As he draws near and he sees the city, he begins to weep and he's saying, starting in verse 42, Would that you, talking about the city, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace He is weeping because he has come to his people, but his people have rejected him. They have chosen to love darkness over the light. They did not know the time of their visitation. That word there is visitation in the Greek Old Testament. It's used when God comes to his people in the Exodus, when he delivers them. Their delivering king has come to them. And then it's later used by the prophets when God comes to judge his people in all the earth. Jesus is saying, you refuse to acknowledge your king, your God, when he visited you in peace. And so now he will visit you in judgment. We need to be abundantly clear. This is not because they couldn't figure out who Jesus was. We read that in the text, because you did not know the time of your visitation it's not because they did not know and they had no understanding of who he was. It's because they rejected him. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 13, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. And he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, "'the city that kills the prophets "'and stones those who are sent to it, "'how often would I have gathered your children together "'as a hen gathers her brood under her wings.'" And you were not willing. You were not willing. He's saying, I want to be like a mother hen and protect you and draw you near and give you warmth and give you comfort and give you shelter. And you were not willing. Jesus has refused, or Jerusalem has refused the shelter and refuge of God by refusing their king. Jesus in Luke chapter 13 goes on to say, Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His followers have cried it out. Blessed is he. It's Passover. And Jerusalem's streets are going to be singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Psalm 18. It's a halal psalm. It's what they sing at the end of Passover. Passover. And Jerusalem has still refused their coming king. The Pharisees in our passage reject him, demanding that his followers stop praising him as the king. The Pharisees are representing Jerusalem at this point. They're representing Jerusalem, and they have rejected their king. And now they face a dreadful and certain judgment. What we need to see, back out for a second, what we need to see is that Jesus is faced by his despisers. He's about to be handed over to them. He'll be beaten and mocked and reviled by them. He will be crucified by them. And he looks upon them. He looks upon their hate for him, their rejection of him, and he weeps for them. That is a new kind of king. He is not weeping because of his sorrow for what he's going to face. He's not weeping because he can't save them. Again, he can, he can make rocks be sons of Abraham and make rocks praise him. It's not that he can't save them. He is weeping because of the judgment that he himself has decreed and he knows it's coming the day will come. What this shows us is that Jesus is truly a new kind of king. He is the king of compassion and justice. Those are not pitted against each other. One does not supersede the other. They do not block one another out. He is of compassion and justice. His compassion does not remove his justice. The wicked shall not go unpunished. And his justice does not remove his compassion, for the Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He is the just king and the compassionate king. He will declare the wicked guilty, but unlike earthly kings, when they say guilty, sometimes flippantly, when he says guilty, his heart hurts and aches. He weeps, he is heartbroken over his judgment. Christian, as one who says, Jesus is my king. I live in his kingdom. Is this the way you view outspoken and maybe even harsh non-believers? Do you return fire or do you ache with sorrow? This is not something to be brushed off This is the way of our king, and we should follow him. He is compassionate to all. An old pastor wrote, Christ's heart is wide enough to take an interest in all of mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. Christian, does our compassion extend that far? pastor's name was J.C. Rowell. Rowell goes on to say, we know too little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, and his disciples should feel the same. Christian, this should sober us. We live in a world that is plagued with polarization and tribalism, you are either on my team or you're on the other team. And if you're on the other team, you're my enemy. That's what the world has infected all of us with. And in our world, if you're my enemy, you are nothing more than the brunt of my jokes, the object of my ridicule, the focus of my hatred. But Jesus, to those who oppose him, To those who refuse him, he weeps for them. He shows compassion to them. Brothers and sisters, beloved, let us follow our king and be compassionate as he is compassionate. This is sobering and Christian. This is deeply comforting to you and me, to those who call Jesus king because he's our king. And this is what he's like. He is our Savior. He is the King of power. He is the King who declares judgment, who distributes judgment. He is our Savior and he is love. His heart is full of compassion. The word for weep is the same word that Luke uses whenever parents weep for their children who have died. Jesus The depth of his love for even his enemies is that of a parent mourning the loss of a child. Dane Orland reflects on this truth, and he says, The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply who loves, but one who is love. The deepest and most inner point and most fullness of what his heart is, is love. He goes on and says, merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays do from the sun. The depth of his compassion has no bottom. The stream of his mercy never dries up. He is the one who is compassionate and heartbroken even over his enemies. And it's not because he's loving or merciful, it's because he is love and the mercy of of God. It's who He is. Christian, that is your King. That is a new kind of King. That is a King we're saying, you are the only one worth praising and following. So if you are weary, if you're facing darkness that no one else sees, if you're beset with a sin, a burden that you carry, You can come to your powerful and humble king, the one with the power to save you and the gentleness to welcome you. And you can come to your compassionate king who invites you to rest beneath his shelter, whose mercy and love will never run out. You can come to the new kind of king, Jesus, the one who is humble in his power and heartbroken in his judgment.